Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. All right, take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. To be loved and known is humanity's deepest need and greatest desire. To be loved and to be known. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. You ever been loved by someone but they don't really want to know who you are? Or to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Is it scary for someone to really know who you are? Because if they reject you and there's no true genuine love, it's one of the scariest, most risky things you can do. But to be fully known and truly loved is according to Tim Keller, well, a lot like being loved by God. To be fully loved and to be fully known is a hallmark of God's relationship to his people. And it should be the hallmark of God's people to God's people. And God's people should be the people who embody this reality of being loved and fully known and fully embraced. And because this is a hallmark of God himself, it is no coincidence that the enemy and the story of his world works directly against the integration of being fully known and fully loved. And one of the ways through which the evil one works to not make this happen, to work against being fully known and to be fully loved, is through what we're going to call this morning the hookup culture. The hookup culture glamorizes impersonal sex, but gives no real clues about a deep, meaningful relationship. And so in the hookup culture... There is this emotional detachment from the physical detachments. Even when young adults want to marry these days, they're having a harder time making a lasting commitment. And a government poll that just came out has found out that almost half of millennials have given up hope or even desire for a monogamous relationship. Let me repeat that. That is crazy. Half of millennials have given up the hope or even the desire for a monogamous relationship. We're in the middle of a series in which we're trying to split our church called Sexuality and the Mission of God. (laughs) Dealing with some of the issues about sexuality and how our culture thinks about those realities and why the biblical worldview is not just the right worldview, but it is an enticing worldview. 
And the reason we're doing this is, number one, to provide a rationale for you, for us as Christians, why we should maintain a biblical ethic in these crazy times. It's not going to be enough just to be like, it's just the way it is. It's not enough just to be like, that's just how it is. Deal with it. I feel like that's like the old school mantra for Christianity and the biblical ethic. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And in one sense, yes. But there needs to be a reawakening to why God actually made the world the way he did. But number two, I'm also, we're also doing this series to provide a reason, a rationale for skeptics and non-followers of Jesus For them to actually, if you're here with me this morning, I'm so glad you're here. And one of the reasons I'm so glad you're here is because if you're going to reject Christianity, I would love for you to reject the principles and the real reasons for why Christianity believes what it believes, not because some crazy Christians out there are being crazy. Don't reject Christianity just because there's crazy people. And I know that's hard in our cancel culture because as soon as one person does one thing, they're just out the door. But if you're going to reject Christianity, actually reject it. Don't reject false modes of it or false personifications of it. And if you don't believe Christianity, that's, I'm, I'm so glad you're here, but I want you also to be like intellectually honest. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Christians, do you know why you believe in the sexual ethic that you actually believe? And so this morning, we're going to look at the hookup culture. Last week, I did an introduction uh, to this whole series. I'm going to bring a couple points of that back. It is online, and uh, our new executive assistant is doing a great job getting our sermons up now, so this might even be up by tomorrow um, for the other half of the church who's not here, okay? So you need to listen. Just kidding. But this morning, I want to look at the hookup culture. And I want to look at it from three distinct points. Number one, I want to look at the purpose of the body. Why God made the body. Two, I want to look at what the hookup culture says about the body. And then three, I want to provide a biblical worldview, a gospel worldview, for why we should believe what we believe. So God, we need your help. Because these are... Tough topics. There's a lot of opinions in this room on these topics. But I pray that you would give us unity, one voice together. And that we would be patient and loving with people wherever they're at. And so Spirit, help us to see the beauty of what it means to be united to the living Christ. And we'll give you praise for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to use a word this morning, and it's called teleology. It's a big word, and it just means purpose, or the end, or why everything is pointing towards. And when I say the teleology of the human body, the body itself, your physical body, the skin, the bones, the molecules, everything inside of you, the cells, are designed with a purpose. And one of the things that Christianity holds out to be true is the unity of the whole person. 
the unity of your soul and your body, that they are integrated and unique and, in a sense, work together. They cannot be separated. Our body has meaning. It has significance. However, there's a worldview out there that we're just going to say is called materialism, and that covers a whole bunch of different aspects and incorporates different things, but for the sake of this morning, we're just going to say that materialism believes that the material of this world means nothing. There's no inherent value to anything in this world that is material, So whether that be a piece of metal, whether that be a Cheerio, whether that be a a computer, or whether that be your actual body. And so materialism makes this distinction between what the person is, who we are as a person in our mind, what we think, and our actual body. They separate this. And where did this divide come from? Well, it goes all the way back to the deepest roots of the Western philosophy, uh, uh, all the way back to Plato. I don't know if you ever studied philosophy. If you like philosophy, the next five minutes are for you. If not, go get coffee and come back, okay? But about, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, a philosopher named Plato believed in what he calls a platonic philosophy. Platonic philosophy is just two different realms. Your body and your soul is acting two different things. They're not integrated. He would actually say the body is like the driver of a chariot trying to steer an unruly horse. So your body is not who you really are. Who you really are is in your minds. And your body is like the driver of the chariot trying to control your thoughts, your minds. And so this was a thought way back in the Western worlds with a man named Plato. It kind of took a back seat when Roman Catholicism and Constantine took over the Western world and the Roman Catholic Church from the year 313 for almost two millennia now has in a sense infiltrated and influenced up until these last days the Western worlds. But on the next slide, I have a a time period for us where we came into an issue during the modern. We looked at this slide last week, and you'll keep seeing it throughout the week. But in that modern period between the 1700 and 2000 BC, we come into another philosopher whose name is Rene Descartes. Anyone know why Rene Descartes is famous? Therefore, he is. Okay, he made the statement, I think, therefore I am. You've heard that phrase before, right? Okay, it seems like a simple sentence, and it is. But the implications of that statement are profound. In that phrase, Descartes himself locates authentic human identity in the mind, not your whole person. The implication is that the body is not an aspect of who you really are. Instead, Your body, your flesh, acts as a mechanism that serves the needs and desires of who you really are, your authentic identity. So your body means nothing other than to fulfill the authenticness of your mind and what you want to do up there. And so a Harvard philosopher, a modern Harvard philosopher, writes this, since Descartes in the 17th century, we have a vision of the self as an immaterial ghost that owns and controls a body the way you would own and control a car. 
Descartes, as we saw on the next slide, we saw last week that this split has happened where now there is this fact value split or this body person split. So that Descartes placed the body in the lower story. What is the lower story? The body is just a machine. It's a robot. It's just a bunch of biological cells all coming together. And in the upper story is the person. The upper person is where you think, where you have perception. It's your consciousness. That's where your emotions and your mind and your will come from. In his words, the mind is a rational soul united to this machine. You know what he called it? A ghost machine. Anyone remember the movie I, Robot with Will Smith? That robot right there, the crazy one, he said, be careful because there's a ghost in it. And you just think, oh, that's kind of weird. There's a ghost in that machine. No, you know where they got that from? Say again. (laughs) Well, it came from Descartes. (laughs) Okay. Calling it a ghost machine. And what is the robot? Just nothing. Just material. However, the body is not a car. Your body is not extrinsic to your authentic identity. It is actually intrinsic. It's an essential aspect of who you are. Being, as we saw last week, being made in the image of God means that we are embodied souls. You are not brains on a stick. Your body was made with a certain design with a certain purpose. And to go against that design is to actually work against the very way you were made. And as with anything in your life, when you go against the way things were made, it gives you a hard life. To go against the grain of God's design, you end up with splinters. And so what we're seeing, what I'm trying to help you to see is this five-minute philosophy lesson that where we are today isn't just created out there in the media. It's been deeply embedded in our culture, in belief systems that now are just coming to pass where the body and the person are actually separate and that the body has no purpose or teleology. But what I want us to see is there is great teleology even in nature. For centuries, the Western world, if you go back to the three-circle slides, on the far left, the modern time, these centuries, the Western world has understood nature to be God's handiwork, fully integrated, nature fully integrated with design, with purpose. As Paul says in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that creation if we're to be honest with ourselves, gives evidence and design for a creator God. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power, God's divine nature, when you look at the world, are clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. Despite the curse upon the earth, the earth still speaks to an intelligent creator and design. But it's not just that nature has purpose, but our body has purpose. It is evident that living things 
are designed with specific purposes, designed with specific ends. Your eyes were made to see. Your ears were made to hear. With birds, their fins were made for swimming. Sorry, no, that's a... That'd be a crazy bird. With orcas, their fins are made for swimming. With birds, their wings are made for flying. Each part of an organ inside of our body is uniquely and exquisitely adapted to the others and all interact in a coordinated, goal-directed fashion to achieve the purpose of the whole, to maintain life. This kind of integrated structure is the hallmark of design. And this design is most clearly seen, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not a microbiologist, and I'm not going to go into all of this, and if you are interested to see the design of the cell, it is absolutely mind-blowing to see how the cell actually works. The DNA molecule stores in an immense amount of information. Geneticists talk about DNA as a database that stores libraries of genetic information. Geneticists are analyzing the way that RNA translates a four-letter language of the nucleotides into the 20-letter language of proteins. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's crazy amazing. To the point that the search for the origin of life, even in the secular scientific world, is being searched for the origin of biological information. See, nature has a design to which it's working. Your body has been designed for a way that's been working. But it's just not living things. It's all the universe has a design. All of the universe is teleological. Scientists have discovered evidence for teleology, not just in our bodies and in nature, but in all the universe. The fundamental physics of the constants that are necessary to sustain life, all working together, is absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, Harvard astrophysicist Howard Smith writes this, the laws of the universe include fundamental numbers like the strength of the four forces, the speed of light, Planck's constant, the masses of electrons or protons, and others. If those values were slightly different, even by a few percent, we would not be here. Life much life, much less intelligent life, could not exist. Scientists call this the fine-tuning problem. What it means is that the physical world exhibits the hallmark of design. In fact, the subtitle of, of Howard Smith's whole article says this, in, almost in spite of themselves, scientists are driven to a teleological view of the cosmos. Everywhere you look, Christian scientists and secular scientists are coming to see the teleology, the design with which we have been made. The universe has been made. Nature has been made. And if you agree with this, that the body has specific purposes and designs that were made by a creator God, then we are obligated to treat the body that way. We're obligated to fulfill the purposes of the body that has specific purposes and design. God's original purposes for humanity. The instruction manual for becoming the kind of person God wants us to be. It's a roadmap for reaching our human telos, our human end. If we're going to be fully human, 
We actually have to live up to the very purposes for which we were made. And what we see in this is that the biblical worldview says that there is no dichotomy. There is no distinction. There is no separating of a body and a person. The two work together and form an integrated whole. We respect our bodies and the design by which they were made just as much as we respect our inner life, our soul, our spirit. And so the implication is this. The physical structure of our bodies reveals clues to our personal identity. The way our body functions provides rational grounds for our moral decisions. That's why, as we will see in this sermon and in the weeks to come, a Christian ethic always takes into account the biology of our human bodies. It respects the body. Now, why is that so important? I want to say that that is all important for this reason. Number two, the hookup culture undermines the whole person. What is the hookup culture? Let's just make sure we're all on the same page. The hookup culture is the belief, a worldview, that having sexual intercourse, having sex, is simply just for fun, pleasure, and everyone should be doing it. According to the rules of the game, you are not to become emotionally attached. No relationship, no commitment, no exclusivity. The storyline, the script, is that you're supposed to be able to walk away from the experience as if it never actually happens. A feminist author named Naomi Wolf wrote a book and did exclusive and extensive interviews with college students. One young college woman said this, we are so tightly scheduled, why get to know someone first? It's a waste of time. If you can hook up, you just get your needs met and go on your way. And she goes on to say, Naomi Wolf, that this bleak, one-dimensional view of sexuality assumes that sex is just a physical urge, that there is no deeper, no more holistic yearning to connect with another person. It is just simply to get your needs met. A Catholic writer, speaking on this hookup culture, goes on to say that beneath all of this free sex and all this glorification of just getting your needs met, underneath all of that, there's this fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it's insignificant. In a literal sense, it signifies nothing. Therefore, not to get all, this will probably be the most graphic we get all morning, what you do with the body has no moral consequence. You can do anything that you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just a wet machine, a tool you can use in exchange for whatever purposes suits your fancy. If you're not familiar with this worldview, this is out there. This is the dominating worldview of the college campuses. In an interview with Rolling Stone a few years back, another student says this, 
that when the hookup culture, we assume that there are two distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one sectional, sexual. And we pretend like there are no clear lines between them. What is the hookup culture doing? It is separating the body from the person. That you can do whatever you want with your body and make it have, fulfill any urge that it needs, but it has nothing to do with who you are in that upper story as a person. And when you make this separation, as I said earlier, that to work against the design by which God made us is to actually get splinters. And what we are finding is that this hookup culture, in all of its glamour, is leaving people more empty than ever before. Miley, Miley Cyrus, you've heard of her? She said, finding someone to have sex with is easy. Finding someone to talk to and have a relationship with is impossible. Today's young people, and it's not just young people, it's people my age, people all ages in this hookup culture, are finding that it is not fulfilling what they really want. Regardless, here's a, a book by Donna Freitas. It's a book called The End of Sex, and she's doing a research study of this book on the hookup culture. And she writes this, regardless of what students brag about or tell their friends, most are terrible at shutting out the emotional dimensions of sexual intimacy. The fact that it does not work ought to tell us something. The fact that we are more empty than we've ever been as a culture ought to tell us something. The fact that we are more lonely than we've ever been ought to tell us something. We're new, not today. But the stats on loneliness are insane. They're crazy. We are so lonely. There's, a, there's actually a, a popular therapist out there. He's been on all the TV shows like Oprah and Made the Rounds. He, he's going through all the rounds recommending that all the kids, all this hookup culture, do what they, he calls a PSD. You need to have a pre-sex discussion. That's his, that's his thing, and he's making rounds. Now, before you actually hook up with someone, you should sit down and have a discussion, just a one-time discussion, and that will make your sexual experience so much more fulfilling. This is from someone who's not even a Christian. The, con the contradiction that is going on shows that there must be something that is flawed. It does not fit with reality. And when we live out the hookup culture... You're trying to live out a worldview that doesn't match who your body is, who your mind is. You can't make this separation in the sexual act between your body and your person because why? They are integrally connected. In fact, later on in, on the next slide, Donna Freitas says this in her book. That's, might need a, micro, or like a magnifying glass. But she says this, men and women... Both spoke of how they wanted to be made to feel special. To experience what it was like when someone else wanted to know everything about them. They yearned for someone to make an effort to create a beautiful setting in which such knowing and being known could occur. For someone who had set aside lavish amounts of time for this to take place. That women and men harbor secret wishes for what appear to be the old-fashioned trappings of romance. Romance. 
seems symptomatic of hookup culture's failings. What they want is everything that hookup culture leaves out. Again, this is not coming from an evangelical Christian. This is coming from someone who's just done some research on the hookup culture, and she is saying that you can't separate the body from the person. You can't separate the emotional attachment from the physical attachments. And it's not just a book that tells us this. It's actually science. Why is there this yearning for more than just the hookup culture? Because our bodies were designed this way. Science is telling us. Uh, The irony is that science is constantly uncovering new evidence of the profound interconnection between the body and the soul, the body and the person. And if you pick up any new book in the last decade on the topic of sexuality and the study of sexuality, you're going to read about two very important hormones. One hormone is called oxytocin. Scientists first learned about this because of its role in childbirth and in when a mother nurses and breastfeeds her child. When this actually happens, oxytocin is released and it stimulates an instinct for caring and nurturing. So that scientists actually called this hormone, the oxytocin hormone, the attachment hormone. That the body actually releases this in the women when they're nursing their children. So, imagine the surprise when scientists discover that oxytocin is also released during sexual intercourse. What is that showing us? The desire to attach to the other person when we have sex is not only an emotion, but part of your physical chemistry, part of your body design. Oxytocin creates a sense of trust. As one sex therapist puts it, when we have intercourse, we're creating an involuntary chemical commitment to the other person. There's another hormone that's more dominant in men, and this hormone is called the vasopressin. And the main neurochemical responsible for this male response in in the act of uh, sexual intercourse when men have it is this releasing of this chemical. And I don't understand all this, but they say it's structurally similar to the oxytocin in its chemical makeup. And it has a similar emotional effect. And scientists believe it stimulates its bonding when a man and a woman are coming together in the sexual acts. So that Genetic biologists have been calling this hormone the monogamous hormone. They say you might find out that you are designed to bond with other people. See, when you commit an act of sexual immorality, it isn't just the separation between the body and the soul. It all works together. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? The two will become one flesh. A woman theologian at Duke translates this phrase, I shouldn't say translate, I should say, gives a paraphrase of this particular verse. She says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, 
your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. What is the hookup culture? It's a belief out there that you can find joy and satisfaction and contentment in just having sex whenever you want because nothing matters with your body. But what we're saying is that the biblical worldview, you can't separate that. And the actual reality is that we're finding that out more and more as we are studying not just our bodies, but also the outcome of the hookup culture. So what is a biblical worldview about sex? Well, don't have it unless you're married. Amen. True love waits. You'll have better sex if you're married. Some of these things are just silly. Some of them are true. But they're not really winning the next generation. They're not, look, our kids, kids out there in the world are not looking out there and just being like, oh, hey, well, all right, I'll believe that. The biblical worldview of sex involves unity of the body and person, and it involves flourishing. In fact, the first time that we see sex actually mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and had a son and named him Cain. So what's interesting is this biblical word, uh, Adam knew Eve. It's actually a word that is used throughout the entire Old Testament hundreds of times. It's the word yada, which means to know. It means to know by experience. Like, it's interesting, in, in, in the Greek language, there is a verb to have sexual intercourse. In Hebrew, to actually have sex between husband and wife, or between a man and woman, or anything, have any type of sex, the word is actually yada, know. Why? Because in the act of sexual intercourse, there is this deep knowing. In fact, the Bible uses this word in the, in the Psalms where it says, you have searched me and you know me. How intimately does God know you? How intimately does he desire to be with you? Or elsewhere in the Old Testament, look at Jeremiah. King Josiah is described this way. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. Isn't that what it, what it means to know Yahweh, to know me, says the Lord? This term, yada, carries deep connotations of the personal deep knowing. There's a profound connection between the man and the woman. Maybe this is why the two chapters before, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, and they came together and the two became what? One flesh. One flesh. And does the phrase one flesh refer to only the bodily correspondence between the two sexes? Does one flesh mean just two people having sex in the lower story of the body and that's all it means? Clearly not. What it means is the yada, is the full integration of the human emotion and will and mind and the body all working in a fully integrated way. So scripture, I believe, offers a stunningly high view of physical union as a union of the whole person across all the dimensions of who we are. 
So why does the biblical worldview, if that's why sex is so great, why does the biblical worldview say that it should be between two married people? Isn't it enough just to be in love? Can't we, like, marry ourselves? Do I really need a sheet of paper? Like, that's really big in movies these days. All it is is just a sheet of paper. The answer to this question is that even falling in love falls short of the ultimacy, the beautiful picture of what God intends in marriage. See, biblical morality asks us to be consistent in what we say with our bodies and what we say with our rest of our minds. We have to be consistent. And when we say we have to be consistent, what do we mean? Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. So that when we actually have sex outside of the marriage boundaries, we're essentially lying with our bodies. Our actions are saying we're united on all levels, but in reality you're not. You're contradicting yourself. You're working against your own body. You're putting on an act that is working against God's design. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 I think I had you turn there at the beginning, right? Two hours ago. I want to make just a couple points on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read down through verse 20. And this will be our final landing place this morning. And what I want you to notice in all this is the worldview I'm combating right now, Paul combated in the city of Corinth. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay, and there's so much here. Let me just stop there. What are members of Christ? Your soul, your spirit, or your physical body. Okay? Oftentimes think about our union being united to Christ as just spiritually I'm united to Him. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Your bodies are also united to Him. So he says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. What that means is for another sermon. But catch this. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your... Okay, I don't know if I could get this across to you enough that the biblical worldview elevates, loves, 
sees your body as having purpose and design. And Paul connects the sexual act with the body in this passage that you can't get away from it. And when Paul says food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, he's quoting a Corinthian slogan. The purpose of that slogan was to articulate a sense of distance in, in the Corinthian worldview, in the Greek worldview. The point was to create a distance between the deeds done in the physical body relating to food, sex, and property. And, by the way, this is from a completely different source that's saying the exact same thing about the two, where I got the two stories from completely different source, but says the purpose of that slogan is to separate the physical, the body, the food in the stomach from everything else that really matters in life, the spiritual level of life, a higher plane to which we are trying to succeed or get to. And Paul is actually looking at the Corinthian culture and saying, they're trying to devalue the body and say the only thing that really matters is the spiritual part. Okay, I just want you to know that is a very prominent view in evangelical Christianity. That the goal of Christianity is to get rid of the body and go where? To heaven. This is not just Paul. This is not just the hookup culture. This is in the church, a view, a low view of the body. And Paul is working against that and says we can't do that. And when Paul says the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body, what is he saying? He's saying the body is for the service and the fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you fellowship with Jesus? Not just in your mind and not just in your spirit, but you actually fellowship him with your body. In fact, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the place where you actually have fellowship with him is in your body. And so if the living God of the universe wants to indwell our body, and our bodies have meaning and purpose and value, Paul's argument is, why would we ever invite a prostitute into that? Why would we ever look for immorality outside in somewhere else looking for just a hookup? One commentator writes this, the mutuality of the formulation, body for the Lord and the Lord for the body, echoes the structure of mutuality assumed to be created in Genesis 2.24 between a man and a woman and may stand under its influence directly. What is he saying? The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body is what the man and the woman was always intended to point to. That the relationship between a man and a woman, the two becoming one, is the relationship that was always pointing to our relationship with Jesus himself. And so how do we abstain? How do we fight the hookup culture? We fight it with this worldview. This worldview that God is in, in us. Our bodies are with the way we fellowship with him. And Paul says in verse 19... Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You've been united to the living Christ in your body, in your spirit. And when that relationship so fills you, 
you will not let any immorality come into that temple. You will find the deepest, most satisfying part of your life in having the spirit of the living God indwell your body. So Jesus, we pray that you'll help us to see that we are temples. Help us to see that our bodies do matter. They were made with design. And that design was actually to be inhabited and be indwelt by you. So we would fellowship with you in our bodies. And so even as we're singing right now, we're fellowshipping with our bodies, with our mouths. And God, I pray that you will help us to fight all the immorality, not just the hookup culture, but pornography, and adultery, with the belief that we've been united to the living Christ. He fills us. He gives us meaning. He gives us joy. So, Father, we ask that you will do a work in us that will make us a people, as we learned in the kids' catechism, full of good works so that other people might come to know you and experience life that's truly life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.